I spent a year and a half taking algebra <laughs> in order to get into the MBA program. It was pretty funny. But I did learn, the reason I didn't finish is because the program that I chose was convenient and it was very manufacturing based. And I got to the point where, you know, I realized that I was excited about taking a human resources class and, you know, that what I would learn from that. And I learned how to build a factory in New Zealand. And I'm like, nah, you know, I'm throwing, throwing good money away here. This is never going to be relevant in my world. So as much as I'm glad because I learned I mean, the, the whole foundation, I basically took this, got business degree, you know, in foundation classes was very worthwhile, but. <laughs> what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? understandably a tough question for any 20-something to answer. So join me, your host, Taylor Marks of the Rise Year podcast, as I talk with some cool people about what they do and occasionally go on long rants of my own about the pains of growing up. I go by Mo. I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I'm the executive director of the Ann Arbor Street Art Fair, the original. All right, sweet. So after the intro, we kind of like, I like to go back to the beginning. So if you could break down, you know, everything from college all the way up until, until like how you got to this position you're currently at. Gosh, there's some parts of that that are pretty interesting. There's some that are not so much, but I got married extremely young because it was the seventies and my first husband and I were both from Catholic families and that's what you did. So I got married very young and got divorced really young and then started sort of to try and figure out what I wanted to do myself that didn't involve another person. And I ended up going to Milwaukee, Wisconsin and going to school, going to the theater department. I had always been drawn to the backstage elements of theater. So the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee had a, an excellent theater program. And so I, I moved to Milwaukee by myself, which was pretty cool. And it turned out that I, my original intent was to go into design, like lighting design. And it just so happened that I had a background as a seamstress or I could sew. And the costume department needed sewers. So I got a job in the costume department, you know, like a work study job. <clears throat> and the, the head of the design department was the, the head of costuming. And he decided that I should become a uh, costume designer, not a lighting designer. And it got to be quite a, a battle and it was a relatively small school. So I ended up leaving the design department. And at that point in time, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee had just started the, the professional theater training program. It's called PTTP. PTTP. 
And as part of that, they were launching this the second school in the country to offer a undergraduate degree in stage management. And it was a standalone program that actually currently is now housed at the University of Delaware. So I, in some ways, I'm like a, a graduate of the University of Delaware. Sometimes I get alumni stuff from that particular program. But as it turned out, I was the first graduate of that program and that was specifically uh, training people to be stage managers. It's, it's historical that stage managers are wannabe directors because they work like the person right under the director. So it was kind of a new phenomenon to have specifically trained stage managers. Hmm. So let's see, I graduated. I, I got a job right after graduation at Purdue University, stage managing, production stage managing their summer stock season. So I was there for summer worst storms anywhere in the country. I like just, I, it totally freaked me out. I know like, but you know, this, it was probably interesting because this whole journey was by myself, which having gotten married so young, it was a, it was a big, and, and it was a different era as well, but you know, it was pretty rewarding to just make this journey myself. And from Purdue, I, got picked up to take a ballet out on tour, which, you know, it was one of those situations where something seems too good to be true. It probably is. You know, I was young. I was very young. Didn't really know what I was getting into. You know, yeah, something that, you know, 10 years later in my career, I never would have gotten involved in because it was a debacle and it was very difficult. You know, the the, it took the, or popped the balloon, but it did also give me some connections in New York City. And as I debated about whether I was going to make Broadway my career choice, I ended up going back to Milwaukee. I spent a couple of weeks in New York and I'm like, I don't want to give up my car. And <laughs> that was the biggest thing. Oh man, that's the biggest <laughs> thing that stopped you from moving to New York City? Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, and you know, it's like starving, you know, being a starving artist and all of that. So I thought, well, I have all these connections, you know, people, somebody will hire me and, and I'll move to New York with a job. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, you know, first piece of advice, if you want a job, if you want to live somewhere, go there. You know, you're just, unless, I don't know, you're some extreme specialized field, you know, the, the fantasy that somebody is going to move you somewhere is pretty much of a fantasy. So I went back to Milwaukee did some did a little bit of freelance stage management with some children's theater and stuff and so I started bartending to to live and I an old college person came into the bar and was working for a festival called Summerfest and he had been, uh, you know, he had been, a I knew him when he was in a band and he had been on the 
the, worked on the backstage end of things and uh, I was a sound guy. So he had gotten hired at Summerfest. He had moved away. I think he was living in LA and was coming back to work for Summerfest. So he asked me if I wanted to volunteer. The main stage was looking for what they called in those days an orange juice girl. <laughs> true, true. That is true. What are you doing um, as an orange juice girl? <laughs> serving orange juice or something else? I don't think that it had nothing to do with orange juice. But, you know, I had time and uh, this was a person that I had known like a long time ago when I first started college. And now, you know, a number of years have gone by and we had lost touch. So he had no idea that I had this degree. And so like, well, that'll be kind of interesting. So I said, sure. I had to interview for the job to be a volunteer, which, you know, I put on a little tube top and tight jeans, <laughs> proved that I could look the part and went in and Jim was there and a man named Bob Babish, who is still the entertainment director at Summerfest. And I got the job a volunteer and they invited me to a party that night so it wasn't you know i'm like i don't know these people really you know but i didn't have anything else to do and party was at bob's house which was a couple blocks from my house so i bought a 12 pack of beer and walked over and to this day that group of people are still my closest friends. What ended up happening was that because I actually was a trained stage manager, it had involved the, the symphony orchestra and there's rules, there's union rules about how long their rehearsal can go. And I knew it was going into overtime. I mean, I could see, and there was no stage manager up at the gym. The gym had been, was really a sound guy. He had no stage management training, you know, it was used to being, you know, working with rock bands. So I you know, got him and went up on stage and stopped the rehearsal before it went into overtime. And, you know, all of a sudden people were like, oh, wow, she knows what she's doing. <laughs> and it was a whole new level of acknowledgement. And I was paid by the end of that 11 days. It's an 11 day. It was sort of the originator of music festivals. If you have not ever gone or don't know anything about it, look it up. It's Summerfest in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it historically ran um, over the 4th of July, but this year it has moved to September. And they're doing it in three weekends in September, but it's a really cool music festival. So I, gosh, like, I feel like I should take a break here. <laughs> I, that was my segue into the concert and festival business. And I left legitimate theater. I never looked back. I spent that, that led to the whole path of the concert business. So I continued at Summerfest, which is only seasonal. I ended up working there for 13 years. I moved from the assistant at the main stage and to having my own stage which in those days at the miller stage and ultimately was the production stage manager at the amphitheater which is the marcus no it's american family now amphitheater in milwaukee which is you know a full regular amphitheater i also was a promoter rep for would start at that the company was Stardate, but it got absorbed by 
cellar door, which got absorbed by Live Nation. At that time, this was the mid 80s, and I was probably one of a handful of women that were doing what I did in the country. It was very much a, a man's profession, but you know, I have to say that I was pretty much always respected. The person that hired me as a, as a promoter rep, again, back in those days, is still a very good friend and very successful in, in rock and roll business. And just, you know, went out on a limb and it was a big deal. It was a big deal for him to hire me. And we talk about it often, you know, that uh, how grateful I am to him. And, you know, he, he, his, when I say thank you, he always just says, well, you know, I, I don't, you don't have to thank me. You earned what you got. So that was pretty cool. And then I see, got, I was starting to get a little older and I got the opportunity to, to get a building position, which was at, at that time it was Mecca in, in Milwaukee. It is now the Wisconsin Center. And there, there's an arena there and they were looking for somebody that had concert experience to assist them in getting more concerts. So I took the full-time job. It was the first full-time job I, I, I think I ever had at that point. So, you know, I left the, the sort of crazy concert freelance world. Although I did have in my, written into my contract with Mecca that I could take a month off every year to do Summerfest, which I, I did because they're, obviously they're, they're, the building was slow in the summer. So, okay. So that gets me into the nineties and I got an offer, you know, I was kind of like realized I wasn't going to go any, any further where I was. So I started job hunting a little bit and I got an offer with Palace Sports and Entertainment here in the Detroit area. And they had the Palace of Auburn Hills and then it was Pine Knob. It's now DTE Music Theater and another little venue called Meadowbrook. And they owned the Detroit Pistons. And so I interviewed and was hired and they moved me to Michigan. That's how I got to Michigan. So I worked there for four years you know, as an event manager. We did a lot of our own shows, promoted our own shows. So it was as a promoter rep and working closely with Live Nation. And that job ended due to restructuring. And so I ended up taking uh, a job with the Detroit Festival of the Arts, which was a, a multi-dimensional arts festival. It was the coolest, coolest, coolest festival ever, just in terms of its diversity. And there was a lot of world music and there was an art fair part of it. So there was a huge kids area and it, it was just really neat. And it was in the cultural center, what's now Midtown Detroit. And I was there until its last year. It got hit by the, you know, the economic crisis of 2008. It was a victim of that. And so then I came here and now I'm in Ann Arbor. <laughs> so it's kind of a long, that's 40 years, I guess. Yeah. 
no, that's that's super interesting of all of the the jumps you made. I mean, you get you you know, I interview some people and they've had the same job for X amount of years and that's what they've done. And it's very interesting to like see these jumps that you've made. So I'm kind of curious, like you have worked various jobs, whether that's freelancing or full time and and all of that when you weren't forced to move because of the company being shut down or restructuring and stuff. How did you decide to make the moves that you did? Was it, were you money oriented? Was it that you had an end goal in mind of a position you wanted or a place that you wanted to work? What was your thinking behind it? I went with the job, you know, I found the job I, I liked and, and moved accordingly. You know, this time, I mean, through all my moves, I guess, you know, I moved to Milwaukee to go to school because I thought that was the school I was the best choice for for school for me. Yeah, I guess it was always job. I've been pretty job driven my whole life. Is that just the nature of the job working and event planning and everything? Yeah, I, yeah, yes, very much so. I mean, I, in all those years of doing the concerts, you know, I never had a summer off. You never have a weekend off. You're lucky if you get a day a week off. I mean, sometimes, in, you know, in the summer at Pine Knob, you know, we would go three or four weeks without a day off because if there were concerts, you were working. And you, know, you got used to not being able to do things, missing stuff, you know, you just, but that's, you know, your focus was on your job and that lifestyle and, and the, you know, the people that you worked with were fun. You know, you worked with people and it wasn't like you were isolated. It just, you know, the normal nuances of everyday life were different. And then, so you had the degree in theater and that's what you thought you were going to do. And, you know, after working at Summerfest, you're like, oh, nope, I'm going to go concerts and live venues and, and everything like that. What was it about working? Was it specific to Summer Summerfest or was it just kind of in general, the different environment that you liked more rather than theater? I liked the environment more, I guess. It was more fun, you know? I mean, it was a lot of fun working concerts. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's no hiding that. I had a lot of fun in my 20s and 30s. You know, I, it just, I never kind of looked back. Everything I did, all the segues, you know, because I really, I still to this day use my training. I mean, there's, there's, I did not leave my training behind at all. And I, and I feel that it's all, you know, everything I've done has segued from one thing to the other. I just never, once I segued, I kind of never looked back. Never looked back. Kept going. Well, and I, I did skip one thing, which is when I was at the Detroit Festival of the Arts, we were on the campus of Wayne State University. So I went back and got my MBA. Well, kind of got, no, I didn't get my MBA. I worked toward my MBA, <laughs> which um, is kind of funny because I was probably 50, I think, at the time. And you had to take, I had, no, I had a fine arts degree. You know, so I had no business whatsoever in my other than specifically theater business. And I had to take algebra for business as a foundation class. And in order to take algebra for business, you had to have had high school algebra within two years. 
And in order to, so in order to take like the equivalent of high school algebra, I had to take remedial algebra. So, you know, I was doing like evening classes, you know, sort of at my leisure. It's like I spent a year and a half taking algebra (laughs) in order to get into the MBA program. It was pretty funny, but I did learn the reason I didn't finish is because the program that I chose was convenient and it was very manufacturing based. And I got to the point where, you know, I realized that I was excited about taking a human resources class and, you know, that what I would learn from that. And I learned how to build a factory in New Zealand. And I'm like, Nah, you know, I'm throwing, throwing good money away here. This is never going to be relevant in my world. So as much as I'm glad, because I learned, I mean, the, the whole foundation, I basically took this, got a business degree, you know, in foundation classes was very worthwhile. But, you know, that's another bit of advice that I would give is, you know, really, really choose your school wisely and choose the program that you're going into wisely. The fact that I I did this specialty program, this highly recognized program, launched my theater career, you know, had I made different choices in my, with my MBA, I would have done a lot better. And I would have finished it, you know, had I done something in arts management, you know, versus general MBA or, or something that had something more, more specific to what I was doing and looking to accomplish. What was your original intention with getting the MBA? The realization that I didn't have, you know, I was at the Detroit Festival of the Arts. I was a special events director, but you know, kind of that thing again, where you realize you can't go any, any further without it's not only the credentials, but it's the knowledge, you know, I, I didn't know business like I needed to know business in order to move to the next level in my career. So it was, you know, something I needed to do. I couldn't see myself. Maybe I do have more happy feet than I, than I realized because I couldn't see myself. I was there for 10 years or nine years. You know, I couldn't see myself staying in that position really much longer. So did you need one for like, if you were to pivot basically and go to the next position, cause where you ended up next, was that at Ann Arbor? Yeah. Okay. So did you need, or do you need an MBA to be where you are now? Like a, like a completed one? You don't need an, an MBA, but you need some business training and an executive director level position is largely about running a business. So at least in the nonprofit world, you know, you you need to understand financial reports and you need to understand investments and capital campaigns and human resources and hiring, and especially in a, a small nonprofit, because you do it all. You wear all those hats. So I, you know, I think you could probably gain that with some undergrad business. And, and there are programs out there, like Eastern Michigan University here, it's in Ypsilanti, has an arts management program. So it encompasses, I think, both an undergraduate and a graduate program that encompasses a lot of those things that you need to know in order to be an executive director 
but yeah, I definitely encourage people to get, take those business classes. <laughs> They're worth it. <laughs> yeah. They seem very, I think that's one of the big pools in general for, you know, if you don't know what you want to do is getting that business degree because it is very transferable to kind of anything and provide you at least a baseline and, you know, either just life in general and knowing how to run your own finances. And if you wanted to start something or just entry level positions and kind of learning to navigate that. So I'm curious though. So what does an average, I guess your days would be kind of different because you're kind of planning for an event that's, you know, a few days out of the year. So if you could kind of take me through, maybe if you have it broken up into sections or like how does like a year process work for planning for the Ann Arbor Arts Fair? Well, 2021 was not a typical year. I can <laughs> tell you that. Normally we have, we, we kick off Art Fair Week with an event called Tony Street Party. And it's got bands and food and a beer garden and it's got a youth art fair. And it's really the highlight of it some community tents and stuff we also do a race a one mile dart for art that Sunday takes place on Monday that you know that empties into the beer garden and it's lots of fun those two events um from our staff time really are uh, com comprise a lot of the work that the staff does in the year leading up to the art fair we also start the well like right now i'm wrapping up you know i'm getting bills paid i'm doing surveys all that sort of stuff and cleaning up the office because it gets absolutely trashed during art fair <laughs> it's like oh there's the floor <laughs> you know? um so you know there's a lot of that but then we start in a, in pre-covid we would have started probably in September preparing the applications for the following year for artists and opened the application in October and juried and had selected all of the artists in February, early February. Now with the coat with COVID, we not knowing whether we could have last year's art fair, we shortened that timeline considerably and didn't even open that um, application until January. You know, and, and it was just a mad scramble. And we didn't do the Tony party, and we didn't do the Dirt for Art last year or this year. So that changed the dynamic of everything. Besides starting the artists, we you know start we do a college student program that we they apply sort of like regular artists only minimized a little bit and we select it was pre-covid seven students that um, we mentor and and pick up all the expenses of them particip participating in the art fair so we would start you know the promotion for that that juries in typically in april the, the kids the youth art fair we, that's also juried, which only because we don't have space for everybody that wants to be part of it. The kids meet, each kid that, that goes through the jury process meets with two arts educators on a one-on-one -on -one and they show their work and it's more of a insightful and educational moment than it is anything else. But you know, we do end up having to select just X number. I think we have 60 spots and we'll have, it's not uncommon that we'll have a hundred kids want to do it because then they can sell their artwork at the art fair. 
And some of it's really amazing. Some of them make pretty good money. And they don't sell it at the art fair, I'm sorry, at the Tony Street Party. But that process starts, oh gosh, the jury sessions are, I can't even remember right now because we haven't done it since 2019. I want to say that they, that starts before school goes, gets out. So, you know, that's like in maybe April, early May. Typically we start hiring seasonal staff in early May, end of April, early May. So it never really stops. You know, there's there it, you know, what you see is only a week's worth of activity. You know, I guess if you had a boatload of people to work on it, you could do it in a shorter time. But as typical with most nonprofits, you just don't have the staff. And, and so what you do is you just space out those duties over the course of the year so that you know you have them done in advance when it comes time to for things to really kick in. How do you decide who in terms of who, I mean like artists, how do you decide who you want there? And are you going for a general, you know, having a motley mix of people? Or are you trying to focus on anyone in specific? Like, what is the thought process behind that? We don't, I don't decide at all. I'm not part of the process. It's a jury, it can be run, it can consist of a lot of different things. Ours is um, pretty unique in the art fair world. We do, instead of just having like four or five jurors look at all of the artwork, we break it down into four sessions. So you have much more, more expertise looking at those particular panels. So we, we have a jury advisory board that each panel session has a member of the jury advisory board on it and four additional guest jurors that have expertise in, in the mediums that they are going to be viewing. Like if it's 2D, you know, painting and drawing, they will, th that jury will consist of painters and, and drawers or, or educators that teach those things or teach a relative field. We're fortunate here, we've got, you know, we're basically in the Detroit area. So we've got the College for Creative Studies, We've got the University of Michigan Art School. We've got Ypsilanti. Lansing isn't that far. So, and actually even Bowling Green isn't that far, Toledo. So we've got a pretty um, robust source to draw our experts from. <laughs> and the jury is all, we use a, a software system that actually the Ann Arbor Street Art Fair helped found in um, 2004 that, that went the turn during from slides to digital images. So <clears throat> people submit their images through the software system, which is called Zapplication. And it goes before the jury anonymously by medium. So, you know, we will routinely have five, 600 applications or more sometimes in some years for, um, maybe 140 slots, open slots. So it's about generally about 20% acceptance rate to get into our fair. And it's, it's um, anonymous. They score the juror score just based on the quality of work and creativeness and technique and design and, 
and all of those things, craftsmanship, trying not desperately not to bring in personal opinion, <laughs> which is never the case. A little hard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's how the Artist Jury Advisory Board walks the fair on the opening day to ensure that everybody that is exhibiting is exhibiting with the work that they juried in with. For instance, if you juried in with, with painting, you can't suddenly bring, uh, you decided you wanted to make jewelry, so you brought jewelry into your booth. You aren't allowed to do that. You could bring, you could do both. You could have both painting and jewelry, but you would have to jury in with both mm. because it's a, it's a quality standard. Mm -hmm. And our fair, I, I'm not sure how much time you spent in the Ann Arbor Art Fair as a whole, but our fair is original only work. And what that means is that there's no offset reproductions for, for 2D work. And it, it's simply a choice. The other two fairs in Ann Arbor do allow reproductions. And you know, there there are there are merits to to either either way. What happens is if you have an all-original fair, and there are a few of us around the country, not very many is that it keeps the, when you only allow original work, it keeps the, it keeps the price point level. When you can sell an offset reproduction, say, you know, you've got an original painting that you're selling for $500. You can make an offset reproduction of that and sell it for $25. And you can sell, you know, a hundred of those for $25, which is, I mean, I have reproductions in my house I have you know there's no personal judgment against that but when you can when you've got two artists next to each other and one is selling offset reproductions for $25 it's hard for the, the people that have original paintings that are trying to sell original paintings for a thousand dollars to compete so it is our choice to have an all original fair gotcha and when you have, you know, I read that, I guess, back in 2018, you were expected to have 500,000 visitors, and, which is a lot of people. How do you plan for this amount of people, you know, being in one confined kind of condensed place? Well, that 500,000 is, it's probably actually more like 400,000, truthfully. And, you know, it's over the course of four days. And the art fair is all of downtown Ann Arbor. So it, it you know, it, it just, it works out. I mean, there are, there are spots like Main Street, which is busy 365, you know, with restaurants and, and shops. That section of the art fair is always really jammed because that street is popular and it's always jammed. But there are, you know, that's, that's one little chunk um, as as you spread out throughout the art fair there's plenty of room for that for that number of people they aren't all there at the same time <laughs> it's not like going to a concert you know where five hundred thousand people are in the same venue that'd be pretty crazy so when but and you're you know getting vendors and getting artists and whatever else i think back then you also had like three music stages going on as well at one point how do you from the executive director's standpoint, kind of go through where you're going to place things and how you're going to kind of have the general flow work for the event. Well, the Ann Arbor Art Fair is actually three art fairs. 
It's not one. It's it's three in one. It's three fairs, one event. So I only manage one third of it. And, and my section is actually small in comparison. The Summer Art Fair, which is produced by the Guild of Artists and Artisans, is the largest. And then the State Street Area Association produces the State Street Art Fair in their district. So we, the three of us collaborate a lot. The three organizations are, are completely separate. We each have a different mission and we each have a different reason for producing the art fair, which is, you'll notice, you know, if you're looking for it, I guess, uh, you know, you'll notice as you walk through the Ann Arbor Art Fair that there's a different flavor in all three sections. And, And that's partly just because it, that's part of our, that's mission driven. In a normal year, I have fountain stage, it's a small stage with acoustic music and um, dance and, you know, kid groups and stuff like that. But I also have the art activity zone, which is family friendly, hands-on activities. You know, we'll do anywhere from six to 10 activities in that tent. We, we, well, we canceled the New Art, New Artist program. That's what I was talking about before, the college student program. Then the State Street section has, there has a lot of shopping in their district. So those folks come out into the streets and they have a lot of vendors, you know, that's where you'll find stuff like beef jerky and sunglasses and sale address. And then the Summer Art Fair is an artist member organization, and their their mission is to is to give as many opportunities as possible to their member artists. So they have a lot of booze, and they do allow reproductions, which is you know that's I mean, that's good. And it they have a lot of artists in that section, and they they're yeah, you will you'll oftentimes find more affordable product because they do allow reproductions in that section. But so, you know, it depends on each fair to answer your question. You know, we want, we wanted a stage and we want these extra activities that we pay for and support. The Summer Art Fair works with the ARC, which is on the Main Street section. And it's a music venue and they partner with the ARC to do a stage in that section because it's really promoting the ARC and it's the ARC doing it in that section. Oh, South University had a stage at one point, but I don't believe that they will pick that back up. That was a victim of COVID, I think. Well, got a lot going on, a lot of things for people to do, provide a lot of different opportunities, it sounds like. And walking around, I mean, I could, like knowing this information now, I can kind of break the sections into chunks and based off of what we saw in different areas. Mm -hmm. So it makes a little bit more sense knowing that rather than, you know, walking through it kind of blindly with that, which is cool. I think that's very interesting to kind of have it broken up into these different sections to allow them, you know, cater for different mediums and what people are interested in and kind of give a whole gamut of options available. Um, So this last part is just four questions that I ask every guest. And the first of which is, if you had a book written about you, what would the title of the book be? Uh, You can do it. (laughs) Yeah? I like that. Very cool. All right. 
The next one is if you had 24 hours to live, unlimited money, and could travel anywhere in the world at the snap of your fingers and bring whoever you wanted with you, what would you do? Well, I would travel Europe and I would probably bring my husband with me. <laughs> if he didn't want to go, <laughs> I bring uh, my girlfriend that I travel with. That sounds like a great way to go out, see a lot of places, get some food, <laughs> yeah. hang out. Five-star hotels, yep, yep. fancy restaurants. Yep, you're good to go then. All right, yep. the next one is would Mo at 8, 10, 12, whatever age you want to pick, kind of around that range, would she be happy with where you are now and what you're doing? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, it, but she wouldn't have even envisioned it, quite honestly. <laughs> it's even better. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last one is what do you want to accomplish either personally professionally and or both in the next six to 12 months um well personally and professionally are kind of the same thing i am retiring Congrats! and so you know it's just a, it's besides that i'm it would it's something i want to do because older people you know it's also a good time for the organization because there's no staff you know, it's a perfect time to transition to a new executive director that can build their own team. I am planning to stay around in part-time capacity to assist with the with the turnover and this, you know, the transition. But really what I'm hoping for is, you know, a successful transition. I, I care deeply about this organization and the art fair. And, you know, I, I want a successful transition in with somebody that's got great vision on how to lead it into the future. And then, like, I want to play in my garden. <laughs> and, <laughs> Is that plants the... and travel. <laughs> yeah, where are you going to travel to? Well, Europe. <laughs> we go to I have a condo in Key West. We go to Key West every year, you know, in October, doing that and just, you know, not having to, like, rush back to go to work. Be nice. Kind of that kind of stuff. Driving to see family and friends and not always having to rush back. Well, that's... And when you move, uh, you know, I've, I've moved quite a bit in my time and my adult life or maybe I'll just move quite a bit. So I've got friends all over the place and, you know, the core group of people, something else I want to really say that's really important to me to, to say to your audience is don't be afraid to volunteer. Really, I wouldn't be where I was today had I not been willing to volunteer for Summerfest that very first year because I had time on my hands and it interested me. That has, that's, that has created my life. And those people are still, the people that, that I made friends with then are lifelong friends. We had a very unique group of people in the music business in Milwaukee in the 80s. One of our group is now the president of Live Nation. You know, one is a tour coordinator, tour coordinator for, on Maroon 5. One is the tour coordinator for Metallica. Um, you know, it, it, there were some really successful careers built out of this pocket of people. And so in my retirement, I want to go around and visit people. You know, I got friends in Texas and I got friends in California and I, you know, so. You're going to see the world. Well, that sounds, that just sounds delightful and wonderful and very, I think it's a very unique position to be speaking with you as you're at the end or weaning 
Alden kind of learning, you know, about what you did and looking, you had a very, sounds like fulfilling time working in your career and getting to meet all these people and do all of these different experiences and definitely very different than um, if I were probably have asked, you know, 18 or 20 year old Mo what she was going to do and what her life was going to look like. And so I always think that's very cool to talk to people who kind of had a full transition or transformation, whatever you want to call it, kind of getting out of that natural state of what they grew up in and what they were used to and kind of fully coming into their own and, and making their life what they wanted rather than what their parents or what society was, was telling them. Well, yeah, I, my 18-year-old yeah. <laughs> <My 18-year-old laughs> self would, would have given you a very different answer than what my life turned out to be. My two takeaways from my conversation with Mo are first, the power of saying yes to opportunities that you can't quite see through the muddled confusion, whether that's volunteering or jobs or helping friends out. You never quite know where it's going to lead. And sometimes those are the things that open the most doors for you in the long run. So not saying that you have to say yes to every opportunity because then that means you're saying no to other bigger things that may be of more importance. But I'm saying say yes more often to opportunities when you have time and opportunities that maybe are completely new to kind of shake things up or it's something where if you think about what you'll get access to by saying yes to this, whether that's just purely the experience or the people or the job and the skills that you'll gain from that, will that be applicable and useful and exciting or just fun? And then make a decision. The second is people, 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 people. I could say that about a hundred times, but Mo, really presses on the power of the people that she met from saying yes to one opportunity and that how people that she'd met over time ultimately were the ones that you know helped her get jobs or helped her navigate things in life. Mm -hmm.